Now, I think we've had more than one problem today uh, here in the building. It does seem to be unusually cold, so if you, if you feel you need to do something physically to warm yourself up, uh, no one else will notice. They're all masked, and uh, it certainly will not distract me. Um, I know most of us are not accustomed to making physical movements in response to preaching, uh, but uh, it would be better that, that, than that you were, uh, had frozen shoulder. And uh, the second thing to say by way of introduction is I believe there were certain uh, communication technical difficulties this morning. And uh, so let me place where we are this afternoon in Matthew 1, 18 to uh, 25. We left Joseph uh, this morning having, first of all, had news somehow that came from Mary ultimately, but probably not personally, from her news from Mary that must have proved to be a devastation. And then secondly, we thought about the word that he would have consulted from God in the Old Testament scriptures that led to a very painful decision, and yet one about which I suggested from what Matthew says in verse 20, uh, Joseph had some uh, godly hesitation until eventually, as we see, the angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream, and there is this marvelous resolution. Joseph is given light on his situation, and he experiences in a very uh, painful context, very dramatic context, what by God's grace we ourselves may also experience. We, we feel ourselves to be shut into a cul-de-sac. We don't know what God is doing. We believe we have sought to obey him. Things have gone wrong. We may have made the mistaken assumption that because we obey God, everything will be straightforward and clear. Life falls to pieces and then God intervenes and in his dream he experiences this word from God that sheds light on his situation. And what I want us to do in this, our third study in these opening chapters in Matthew's gospel, is to examine this light. What is it that is so monumental that transforms Joseph's life. And we might say immediately by application, what is it in this message of the angel that transforms the life of anyone who receives Christ into their home, into their lives, into their hearts? And I want to look first of all towards the end of the passage at the statement that Matthew makes in order to give us the big picture. And Matthew seems to like to do this in these opening chapters. He did it in verse 1. He gave us the big picture and then he broke it down in the verses that follow into the generations from Abraham to David to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he gave us forewarning again in verse 18. 
to us, the readers, to the first hearers of how this story was going to unfold. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then later on in the passage, if you have a Bible open before you, you'll see it's highlighted there by the way in which the words are set in our modern versions. Matthew tells us that the birth of this child is the fulfillment of prophecy. And again, this is all of a piece with what he's been doing. First half of the chapter, he's telling us how the birth of Jesus is all of a piece with what God has been doing all the way through history from the time of Abraham. That his hand has been on every single twist and turn. When God's promises seem to have fallen into the dust, his hand has still been there. He has been focused on the end point. And all the while he has been superintending history so that it would come to a climax in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now in verses 22 and 23, he's telling us that this took place in order to fulfill a specific prophecy. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah 7 verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now if you just turn over the page, you'll notice that in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and actually it continues through other chapters, Matthew is constantly quoting scripture. There are five occasions in the nativity narrative where the scriptures are quoted. Four of those occasions, he prefaces the quotation by saying, this took place in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There's one other place the scriptures are fulfilled. But it's interesting, perhaps illuminating, that Matthew doesn't say the scriptures are fulfilled. It's when the wise men hear from Herod, who has consulted his own theologians, where is the Messiah to be born, and they quote scripture. And they're able to locate the exact town where Jesus is going to be born. And it's kind of unusual that Matthew doesn't say they were able to see this because Jesus' birth fulfills scripture. When you see something like that in the Bible, you should stop and say, why, why is there that difference? Perhaps the difference is this. Because Matthew doesn't want us to think that God fulfills Scripture always in exactly the same way. That is, literally and literalistically. So here was an Old Testament prophecy He will be born in Bethlehem. That's very exact. Very, very exact. Here's a word. Here's a city. Here's the city. There's the baby. But if you look at the other prophecies that are fulfilled, they're they're not all of that kind. Later on, uh, Matthew will quote from Hosea, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
And it's actually looking back to the exodus from Egypt, and yet he says it's, it's referring to Jesus. And, and what he seems to mean is, don't you see that God has embedded patterns of his saving grace and power in what he has done with his people long ago, and those patterns are now coming to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is another prophecy that is fulfilled. So how is it fulfilled? Or perhaps to put it a slightly different way. How does God fill full the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14? What was that prophecy about? Well, it was about Isaiah going to King Ahaz and saying, we are under attack but you must rest in the Lord. He is in control of the situation. You must trust him. Now, says Isaiah, God wants you. God wants you to be sure of that. And God is saying to you, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, although he says it very piously, in his heart is saying, I will sort this out on my own. I don't want a sign. And so Isaiah says to him, whether you want a sign or not, here is the sign God is going to give you. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and uh, his name will be called Emmanuel. And certain things will happen before that child has grown up. Now it may be that there was an early fulfillment of that in Ahaz's own day, in Isaiah's day. A woman who was a virgin or had been a virgin giving birth to a child and that child being referred to as Emmanuel, a sign that God is with us. Actually, in the next chapter, Isaiah's wife has another boy and later on in the chapter, he seems to be addressed as Emmanuel, although His name is Maharshalal Hashbaz, speed, spoil, hasten, pray. But we know him as Emmanuel, meaning Isaiah believed what he had said to King Ahaz. But if that were the case, if that were the case, then what Matthew is saying, that child was just given a name. It was just a symbol. It was a pointer to God's gracious promise. Because, of course, God had frequently been with his people. Every time we sing the 46th Psalm, verses 7 and 11, the God of Jacob is with us. He is our refuge. So God had constantly been with his people, rescuing his people. But now Matthew is saying, now this is the real thing. This is not just God presencing himself with his people, protecting them. This is actually God coming among his people as it were, becoming one of them with their flesh and bones. So a virgin will conceive 
And in contrast to any form or minor fulfillment of this prophecy, there may have been an Isaiah's day. The wonder of this, the miracle of this, the majesty of this, the utter uniqueness of this is that this virgin will conceive and bear a son while she remains a virgin. And the child who is called Emmanuel will actually himself be God with us. Now, when Mary heard this, she asked the most obvious question. How can this be, seeing I am a virgin? Joseph doesn't ask that question. But maybe the reason he doesn't ask the question is because the angel actually explains to him that this is something that the Holy Spirit is doing. So Matthew himself tells us that the birth of this boy is going to be in a totally unique way the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. But then the angel explains to Joseph that the conception of this child is going to be the result of the Spirit's ministry. Look at what he says in verse 18 to set the story up for us, the readers, or for the first hearers. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, Joseph, this is the reason you do not need to draw back from Mary because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we may ask the question, how? It's actually a fairly foolish question to ask if you're a Christian because you and I don't know how the Holy Spirit does anything. You and I don't know how the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters in the original creation and brought order and fullness. You and I don't know how the Holy Spirit, as Isaiah says, led the people of God through the exodus by these strange pillars of cloud and of fire. You don't know how the Holy Spirit regenerated you. Oh yes, you can describe the events that surrounded it, but you don't know how he did it. You didn't see it happen. You don't have the powers of analysis to explain anything the Holy Spirit does. You don't know how the Holy Spirit raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And you see, we've got to put this grand miracle in the context of all these other miraculous events. We are merely human beings. The idea that we would understand how God does things, the idea that we would dare to say to him, I'm not going to believe this until I understand it, would be a form of the greatest arrogance. 
Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why so many atheistic scientists want to explain the world. Because they cannot stand the notion that almighty God who created the cosmos would do anything that they are not able to understand. And we are six feet tall and a couple of feet wide. Who do we think we are? Yes, Mary says, Gabriel, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. She's not asking, explain it to me. She's saying, I I can't understand this. And in the dream, the angel is coming to Joseph and he's saying, Joseph, of course you can't understand it. Because this is something the Holy Spirit does. Remember at the end of the book of Job, we have a scene like that where God bids Job to stand before him and he gives him this kind of fireworks display of the glory of the universe. And he says, who were you when I did that? Who were you when I did that? And that and that and that. And Job understands. I'm a mere mortal. I'm a tiny speck of dust made from other specks of dust in the cosmos. And he is the mighty God. And if I believe he is that, then I understand that he does things that are simply beyond my comprehension. So you see, when you put it that way, it's logical not to be able to understand this. And here is Joseph. You, know, you hear what foolish people say. Well, he was, a, he was a simple carpenter from Nazareth. Simple carpenters from Nazareth did not believe that young women who were virgins conceived babies. They didn't believe it. They'd never seen it. They couldn't understand it. But the marvelous thing is that he yielded. And let me put it this way. In many ways, it was more of a challenge for Joseph to yield to this than it's ever been for us to yield to this. Isn't that true? And so here the angel is coming to him and he's explaining to him, Joseph, this is a supernatural work of God. And Matthew gives us, I think, a little hint that helps us to interpret the significance of this. Um, the very first sentence in the gospel is literally the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And fascinatingly, in verse 18, that's translated in the English Standard Version. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ is the genesis of Jesus Christ. And you couldn't have been one of the first readers of this gospel or hearers of this gospel with that sounding like echoes in your ear. Genesis. Genesis. 
Oh, is that what God is doing? Is that why this is so unique? Is is that why? There's no way I can understand it because what God is doing in the birth of this boy is he is beginning all over again. And that's what this whole book from your blank page to the end of Revelation chapter 22 is about. It's about God's new creation. It's about God beginning again. Having begun in Adam, and Adam having fallen and brought the world and humanity toppling around him into destruction, God in his infinite mercy is beginning again. And he's beginning, you see it? He's beginning again from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning in the darkness. But not now the darkness that was on the face of the deep. But the darkness that surrounded the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he was beginning all over again. He was beginning again to create a new humanity out of this this tiny, this tiny reality that had been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he, as the rest of the New Testament tells us, he is the beginning of the new creation. The new creation in which we begin to participate. Remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And... It's all the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. So you see, even although we're we're not able to explain this, it, it all fits together. The Spirit working in the original creation on the darkness to bring about life, order, and fullness. And then the image of God, men and women. And then God recreating in the darkness to begin the new creation, the new humanity, and in both cases doing it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's so wonderful. And then doing the same in our lives, bringing us to the new birth. In a way, none of us, you're not able to look inside yourself and say, oh, I'm being born again. It happens mysteriously, sovereignly, secretly. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now we often think about the Father sending his Son. And, and the Lord Jesus, the Word of God, becoming flesh at Christmas time. But um, we need to think about the ministry of the Spirit as well, don't we? And Matthew wants us to think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because what is true of the conception of the Lord Jesus that it takes place through the ministry of the Spirit is actually true of the whole of the rest of the life of the Lord Jesus. Everything he does from this point onwards, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see that, don't you, in the New Testament. When when he's baptized, the Spirit comes upon him to empower him for this new work he's going to do. When, when, he, when, he's, 
when he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, we're told he was, he was driven out there. He was led out there by the Holy Spirit. When he does his miracles, he says, I'm doing this by the finger or spirit of God. When he teaches, he teaches because the spirit of the Lord is upon him and has anointed him to preach the good news. He dies on the cross, says Hebrews. He dies as one who is supported by the Holy Spirit. He offers himself through the eternal spirit. And when he rises again from the grave, the New Testament teaches us he is being vindicated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the explanation. So if his birth is the fulfillment of prophecy, his conception is the result of the Spirit's ministry. And this leads to the heart of the matter, which is the truth about the child's identity. Because you'll notice that the angel identifies him in, in two ways. He is Emmanuel, God with us, not just a symbol but the reality. God actually taking our flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. One person, now with a divine nature and in that same one person, a human nature united to him. No wonder this is beyond our understanding. He is one single person, not two people. He is two natures, divine and human. But these natures are never, as our Christian teachers have taught us in the past, as our own church's confession teaches us, these natures are never mixed together. There is no point in Jesus' ministry when his deity penetrates his humanity and mixes with it. And no point where his humanity penetrates through to his deity and mixes with it. Because if that happened even for an instant, he would have become something very different from you and me. But he ever remains a divine person with a divine nature. And for our sake, in our Human nature, he assumes in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he does everything we need. And that's why the angel says, when he is born, Joseph, call his name Jesus. Mary is going to bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. So he is Emmanuel, God with us, himself God. The sheer miracle of it. As I think about it, I think, no wonder I can't understand this. No wonder I can't explain this in terms of something lesser than itself. But he's not only Emmanuel God with us. There's a reason he is Emmanuel God with us. And it's found in the particular name that he's given. The name Jesus. And the angel says, Joseph, call him Jesus because he will save his people from 
their sins. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? It is the Lord, Emmanuel, the King of glory. And it's also Jesus, Yahweh saves, the Savior of sinners. And you see, this this is God's way of solving our dilemma. As members of the old creation, we are sinners. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to recompense for our sin. We're not only lost, but we're helpless. Absolutely helpless. And so if we're ever going to be saved, there is the great dilemma. We are the ones who have sinned and and we are the ones who from among whom the repair needs to be made. Angels can't do it. We can't do it. And so in this great mystery, God himself does it through his son, taking our flesh so that he can be one of us, so that he can do for us, among us, what we cannot do for ourselves. And then if you think about it, even if one man, one human being, one woman could live an absolutely perfect life, they would owe that to God. There wouldn't be anything left over for other people to say, well, I've done enough and I've done more, so I'll lend that more to someone else. And this, it seems, is why it's so essential that he be Emmanuel, God, with us. So that what he does may have such quality about it. That not only can he live a life instead of one other. But live a life instead of all his people. And then because he has no sins of his own to die for, to die the death of all his people, to secure their salvation. And you'll notice it's really worth pointing out, I will never forget one Saturday night in a Baptist church where the minister, I think, was what people theologically would call an Arminian. He read this passage, and it hit me as a teenager like a ton of bricks. He will save his people from their sins. He didn't just come into the world to make salvation possible, did he? He didn't come into the world and die for us with the possibility that no one would receive him and no one would be saved. No, the great thing that Joseph is hearing is that when this child finishes God's work, then that work will secure the salvation of his people. And he'll be able to cry, it is done, finished, complete, accomplished, achieved. 
And so right at the very beginning of the gospel is a message to Joseph that would secure him for the rest of his life. That if I am one of his people, he will save me. Because as a great American theologian, B.B. Warfield, put it very strikingly, it's not faith that saves you. It's not even faith in Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you through faith. And so though our faith seemed to be poor and weak and tottering, If we are his people and with the weakest faith find ourselves unable to deny him. Unable not to cling to him. Unable not to say to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, Lord. I am weak. I am frail. Things are falling down around me. As those same fathers used to say, the weakest faith gets the same strong saviour as the strongest faith. Because he saves his people from their sins. When we were young teenagers in Bible class, we used to sing a hymn that now sounds in a way so yesterday's song. But it stuck in my mind as such a great summary of the gospel. One day, when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when earth was as dark as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, lived among men, a redeemer is he. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious, glorious day. And you'll notice how careful Matthew is to include the first word of this prophecy of Isaiah. Behold, look, or as they say in the modern parlance, see, you see it. Do you see him? Do you see him? Because those who look to him and see him, the scriptures promise, will live. Have you ever done that? Actually looked to him? I don't know how many people I've met in my life in the course of being in congregations, people who who never ever dream of denying the virgin birth or any article of the Christian faith. But they've never actually looked to Jesus. It never seems to have dawned on them that he's real. And of course, that happens when the Holy Spirit begins to work. And then the Holy Spirit has begun to work. And they've looked to Christ and kept on looking to him forever. I've never forgotten a little old lady in a congregation coming up to me after a service and saying, 
with a smile. She was a very small lady. She looked up to me with a conspiratorial grin on her face and said, you know, everyone in this church thinks I've been a Christian almost all my life. But I only really became a Christian two years ago. She had looked to Jesus and found in him the saviour that she needed. And we need to do the same. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the way in which you have written into your word and into the lives of those whose experiences described in that word great truths about who you are and how you work. We recognize that they humble us, that this humbles us, humbles us to think that this is the way you would save great people like ourselves. And then we realize that we are nothing and we have nothing, no ability to begin again spiritually, that we are lost, that we are without hope in this world apart from your mercy. And you have shown mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And you've shown us to him in your word and you show us him through your Holy Spirit. And you work in people's lives when they've no idea that you're working there. Things happen and they don't realize that you're working. They find themselves disturbed and they don't realize you are causing the disturbance. They find themselves seeking and they don't understand why. Because you love to work Holy Spirit in the darkness to bring us into the light. And we pray that as we consider Jesus Christ, light may dawn upon our lives and we may trust him with all our hearts. And we ask this with thanksgiving for him in his name. Amen. Amen.